0: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to keep on top of the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day. Better still, join SubChina's Access Program for lots of bonus materials, steep discounts on our conferences and our live shows, and membership on our SupChina Access Slack channel where you can talk China with our staff, our readers, and our listeners, and take part in weekly live conversations with special guests. I am Kaiser Guo, I am coming to you today from the sidelines of the Association for Asian Studies Conference in Washington, D.C. I am, I regret to say, terribly disappointed that David Moser, who had originally planned to be in town for the conference, wasn't able to make it. Originally, he was going to co-host this episode, along with Jeremy Goldcorn, while I just manned the controls, but as fate would have it, it's just me. Jin Yumi, that Arch Pianzi, claims to be on vacation, but actually he is, I'm going to reveal to you, back home in Nashville, Tennessee, working on his latest stupendous feat of charlatanism, which I think involves building a mega church on his land in Gold Holler, where he plans to fleece unsuspecting God-fearing Americans of their hard-earned money with a theology shamelessly cribbed from Hong Xiuquan and his Taiping Doctrine. He's going to deliver sermons in that slickly charming Anglo-South African accent of his, and shame on him, shame on him. Anyway, today on Seneca, we are going to talk about the Pianzi Jin Ming Dynasty forerunners in the art of the grift, as well as how hucksterism and its unscrupulous practitioners have ebbed and flowed in the centuries since. Seems appropriate in this time when in China one feels like one must maintain real vigilance against increasingly sophisticated scams, and when here in the U.S. the whole damn country was conned in 2016. Uh, Joining us are two gentlemen who have translated Zhang Yingyu's book of swindles into English. Uh, Christopher Ray is an associate professor of Asian studies at the University of British Columbia, UBC. He is the author of the book The Age of Irreverence, which is a companion volume to Evan Osnos's The Age of Ambition, and to Xi Jinping's The Age of Xi Jinping. Uh, welcome to Seneca. You are very long overdue, Chris. Thanks for having me here. Also joining us is Bruce Rusk, Associate Professor of Premodern and Early Modern China, also at UBC, and he's former President of the Society for Ming Studies. It is actually Ming Madness Month, isn't it? It's always Ming Madness. <laughs> well, Bruce, welcome to Seneca. Really great, great that you could make it here. Uh, so, Chris, first to you, uh, who was Zhang Yu and when did he live? Uh, what, what else is he actually known to have, have written or, or to have
1: done? Well, we know more about when he lived than who he was. Uh-huh. He lived in the 16th to 17th century, thereabouts. But we don't know very much about his background. Some people say he was from Zhejiang. Some people say he was from Fujian. Uh, If you actually read the one book that we know that's attributed to him, uh, it says different things in the preface from in the text itself. So uh, he's a very murky character. Uh, There are some textual clues that he might have been from the south, from Fujian because he uses some Uh Fujianese dialect and slang terms. But we really can't tell too much more than that, except that he had a lot of sympathy for merchants, for the businessman on the road.
0: Well, if he's from Zhejiang, then yeah, of course that makes sense. That's right. That that, that attests to either province. Right, it's
1: like like Tennessee down there.
0: (laughs) Bruce, do you have any uh, clues or a speculation as to, do you you lean either way, Zhejiang or Fujian?
2: The compromise would be to say that he was a Zhejiang man who lived in Fujian. Um, uh-huh. And he probably lived most of his life in Fujian because there's so much Fujian language there, Minnan.
0: And, and what about this time that he lived in? I mean, maybe you can paint a picture of China in the time of the, the early 17th century, I suppose, is when you wrote Bruce. You
2: want to? Sure. It's a very flourishing commercial economy. The Mm -hmm. world uh, trade that connects China to Europe, even to the Americas through silver coming from mines in Mexico and South America is making people rich quickly. But that's also changing the social order because the old status symbols, the old stratifications of society are falling apart. People can't rely, for example, on seeing somebody wearing fancy silk and knowing they must be from an elite hereditary family. Right. They could have just bought that yesterday. And this new wealth is making it really difficult to tell who you can trust and people are moving around a lot more than before.
0: Well that is the first of many descriptors that I think are going to echo. I mean they are gonna have a lot of similarities to the society that we're living in today or have been for the last couple of decades. So okay, uh, Social change going on, absolutely. The Colombian exchange really kind of upending the whole commercial order in in so many ways. Um, All that silver coming from Potosi. So it was a time then of swindlers, of con men, right? This was a a time when they they kind of flourished and and they were particularly commonplace.
1: Yeah, it seems like the way to wealth was not just landowning anymore, Uh right? Having a, a major estate. You wanted to actually go hit the road and do some commerce. You get a lot of stories in Zhang Yu's collection about somebody who's taking a load, you know, several bolts of silk down south or is just made a, a packet down in Guangdong selling some other commodity and is on his way home. And uh, that whether he's on the road or whether he's on a boat, you know, he's a mark.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> and so
1: He's got to watch out. So what do you
0: suppose Zhang Yu's intention was in writing this? I mean, so who's he actually writing it for? And was the Book of Swindles supposed to inoculate people against these sorts of hucksters? Or was he just writing to entertain people? Because, you know, it, it, it actually is very entertaining.
2: It's a, it's a lot of both. Um, the preface, which was written by someone else, will tell you that he was a, a wise Confucian gentleman who is warning you about these dangers. Uh-huh. And the stories themselves sometimes contain morals that tell you how to avoid a trap like this. But if you read it carefully and you read his notes that he adds to the end of every story, a lot of the times he's actually delighted and marveling at the ingenuity of the scammers. right, right. And right. so... We you also get the sense that he may have sometimes sided with them uh, because this was a battle of wits, and whoever came out on top deserved it.
0: Now, the other side of the coin for the Confucian gentleman who so values intellect, right? I mean,
2: <laughs> exactly. Is,
0: is this, Chris, is this similar in any ways to some of the other literature that came out at around the same time? I mean, I'm thinking about for, say, the scholars, Ruling Leicester, uh, I mean, I, I hear some echoes of it. And, and also, what's the language that it was written in? Is this in Guine or is this in Baihua, kind of like the other Ming novels of the time?
1: Yeah, it's all in Wenyan. Oh, interesting. yeah. Even the dialogue is essentially in a, a version of Wenyan. In, sl- yes, right, in classical Chinese, yes, in classical Chinese, right. right. Um, and so it's different from you know you find stories about tricksters and Fang Long's famous stories or Ling Chu's stories, or a lot of big story collections written in vernacular Chinese. You know, more like people speak about bags dropped by the side of the road and someone picks it up, then someone else comes out and it's like, hey, that's my bag, you know, let's split the silver in it, but it turns out to be filled with lead or something else. So you have similar stories like that. And then yeah, hundreds of years later, you know, in Qing novels like like the scholars, you do get similar scenarios or in, in other Ming novels like Plum and the Golden Vase. You also get procuresses and go betweens and all these shady characters
0: between the sex scenes. Right?
1: Oh, yes, between the sex scenes. Well, you can swindle for sex as well as for money, and so there is plenty of that going In this on book here too, too. Yeah, yeah, lots of sex. Yeah, but it's a it's a unique collection, partly because of the language, I and mean, it's it's a language that's not extremely complex and with tons of allusions. So maybe your average merchant man street could pick it up and learn some lessons from it.
0: And how did it come down to us? How was it preserved?
2: Well, we don't know exactly. It was printed in about 1617, the first edition, and very few copies survived at all, but it became quite widespread in Japan. Uh, It was popular there, was translated and selected in Japanese editions, and a few copies that survived uh, in Western libraries and in Japan were then reprinted in the late 20th century.
0: Was it at some point actually banned? Did they go after it, for example, after the Qing conquest? Was this extirpated deliberately?
2: Not that we know of. It doesn't seem to have risen to the level of uh, some of the other novels actually, like Plumb in the golden vase, which could be banned
1: as lascivious, but um, it was just ignored, as far as we can tell, except for the people who cribbed from it. So it's a bit of a mystery. And you mentioned the scholars, and there is a story in the scholars that is very similar to one you find in the Book of Swindles, where in that in this scholars version, someone has been taken to court for murder. So this man says this monk like murdered. I'm sorry, this man murdered my uh, my father, but it turns out he means a cow. And that uh, it's a monk who's, try- who's been going around duping people by pretending that their livestock are his reincarnated parents. And the way that he <laughs> convinces them that they're his reincarnated parents is because when the animal sees him, he comes over and starts licking him on over his head and his body. And like, it turns out he's been smearing salty brine. On his skin, ah, and so right. it seems like you know familial affection.
0: People do that with peanut butter now for their dogs. Right? Exactly,
1: oh, yeah, but yeah. in the in the book of swindles, the guy gets away with it, and in the scholars, they don't. But that's, you know, a hundred year gap. So these stories were certainly out there.
0: This is the thing with you, Chris. Uh, how, how did the two of you first become interested in this particular text? I mean, because I know you're one of the Anglophone world's leading experts on the Chinese funny bone. So in your case, was it the humor in these stories that drew you to the text and impelled you to undertake this massive translation? Or uh, was it something, you know, sort of more purely scholarly?
1: This is definitely the most fun translation project I've ever done. <laughs> and uh, it was a fantastic collaboration. Uh, But uh, I think it was partly because when I've been studying, you know, humor and laughter in like early 20th century China, there are all these stories about how Shanghai is a place you don't want to trust anybody. Like if you're coming from the countryside... You got to watch out for those slippery Shanghai types, and you know a little something about regional stereotypes. I do. I mean, like being a...
0: Hunanese myself, I mean, I guess Hunan is the new Shanghai,
1: right? Well, maybe, <laughs> but uh, you know, or you could say, you know, Canada is, is less uh, shady than the U.S. Because right. you know, the further south you get, then essentially the more shady things are. But uh, but in the but there are a lot of stories in like the 1920s about Shanghai's world of swindlers. You have books with titles like this: four-volume collections of swindle stories. And so I became curious about um, how, if there are any earlier versions of these stories, how these how these archetypes were formed. And I was also there are a lot of uh, stories about kind of funny trickster figures uh-huh. becoming culture heroes. And It's like why do we need trickster heroes in uh, 20th century Shanghai? So uh, when Bruce mentioned the Book of Swindles to me, like that sounds fascinating. I, I've never heard of this work, and it turns out that actually a lot of Ming Dynasty literary experts haven't heard of this work either. So it's a huge mystery about, like, why it disappeared from the literary record for about 400 years. So,
0: so Bruce, how did you come on to the text? I mean, how did you, you, you discover it?
2: Well, I've been interested in fakes and how people f- detect forgeries and um, detect charlatans for a long time. And I was particularly interested in silver. And ah. that, of course, was the main form of money in the late Ming that people didn't, for the most part, carry out big transactions in coins, they use lumps of silver, ingots, yeah. yuanbao. Ball. And um, inside this text, there's quite a lot about the mechanics of transactions with silver and how people looked at a piece of silver and decided if it was to be trusted or not, just the same way you have to decide if a person is to be trusted or not. So I was really interested in it from that point of view, translated a few of the stories actually to use in class, in teaching with undergraduates, and found students really loved them, this window onto the society. And so kept those sort of going and and talked to Chris, and we decided to translate more of it.
0: So there were a a total of some 80-odd stories in there, and you guys translated 40 or so. First of all, how did you select which ones to do? And and then secondly, the organization of them, uh, is that native to the book? Are they actually in the original text? Is it organized by type of swindle? Or is this something that you guys decided to do?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, the categorization is one that Zhang Yu himself came up with. Okay. Or maybe an editor, maybe someone at the press. But it does seem like the the author had a role in it. And so he's taken this category of swindle and divided it into you know, misdirection and theft, bag drops, money changing, false relations. He has a whole section on brokers, another one on women, marriage scams, gambling, um, and and so on and so forth. And so uh, we wanted to have so- at least one story from each section. But we also we each did a pass and a read-through and see which ones also stood out as the most entertaining or interesting right, right. to us. And so we want to kind of represent the the spirit of the work. There's some stories that are repetitive, so we cut some of those out. Uh But uh, we also wanted to show some of the outliers as, you know, some of the more outrageous stories.
0: Bruce, are these presented by Zhang Yu as fiction or as factual or something maybe in between?
2: They're kind of in between, like a lot of Chinese fiction, which is modeled on history. So they often start off with saying such and such a person lived in such and such a place, and one day this happened. And that can be the pattern in a lot of historical biographical writing, but it's also the pattern of a lot of fiction writing. And so the, the line was kind of blurry, uh, but I think people definitely took them as fiction at the time. I think there was certainly an awareness that most of the figures in them, although a few are real historical figures, and some of these anecdotes circulate elsewhere, most of them are made-up people because they're also from a very low level of society, right, ordinary right, merchants right. that we wouldn't hear about otherwise.
0: So that, that's interesting because, you know, this guy is obviously or he's portrayed as some sort of Confucian gentleman and he goes among the, the lumpen, right? He goes among <laughs> the, he talks to people of quite low class, maybe not all the way down to the, the actual mendicant, but to, to pretty, you know, sleazy kind of huckster merchant types and and to, you know, traders and to peddlers, right?
2: Yes, well, he's also perhaps from this class of the Confucian merchant, the Shang, uh-huh. who can be in between who can both have to deal with the everyday business of business and also make at least make the pretense that they're an educated man
0: uh so Zhang actually appends a lot of commentary on um, commentary really to each each of the stories. What can we glean about the source of his? ethics. Uh, are they your basic sort of Ming, uh, I guess it would be, you know, neo-Confucian, juicy kind of uh, neo-Confucian ethics? Or is he, does he have some sort of other ethical standard that he seems to to throw these up against?
1: Well, he definitely tips his hat to Confucius and Mencius. And he seemed to be a big fan of the Book of Changes, which I'll, I'll let Bruce talk about because he's an expert in, in that. But some of some of his sentiments are kind of predictable and moralizing right. about like yeah. we should condemn crime. You know, thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> uh well done. But sometimes uh yeah, he says, well, really the dupe was at fault. Like this was a bad situation. Anyone could have told at a glance. You do not mix with that type of person, you keep your silver hidden, you don't mix it in the same box with him. And so he, he condemns their stupidity sometimes. Victim um, blaming. Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of that. And, and he, he, but he's also like trying to give practical advice. So a lot of times he gives like really specific recommendations about when you travel, you should have an attendant with you. Uh-huh. Right. So that if you get drunk at that banquet, they can wake you up. If, you know, you get, there's one where the guy gets thrown overboard and drowns, but fortunately the, the other guy didn't have as much to drink and is able to save some of the situation. If not his master.
0: Well, the things that I, I'm most interested in, um, I mean, since this is a, a podcast about current affairs, what does this tell us about you know what's happened in recent decades? I mean, we can see the relevance of the book to the age that we now live in. I mean, anyone can. Can you talk about? Let's 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 all sort of do this as a kind of mental exercise. What are the characteristics of a society that make it an age of charlatanism? And I don't think it's something that's particularly Chinese necessarily. I think I I mean, reading through it, I I. Kept picking up on things. It's like you know this is an awful lot like X time, and I think probably anyone who's familiar with American history will go will zero in immediately on the period after uh, the the Civil War, after eighteen sixty five, and what has you know memorably come down to us as the Gilded Age, which was I mean this is actually something that Evan Osnes pointed out to me years ago, just the the, the incredible parallels, when just. The the river I was just swimming with these these snake oil salesmen. I mean, literal snake oil salesmen, right? That's when snake oil first started being sold as sort of this panacea. Right. I, I just finished reading Ron Chernow's a biography of Ulysses S. Grant, who, of course, you know, you know, he he lived during that time. Obviously, he was you know the the great general who accepted the Confederate surrender at Appomattox what uh what was it about that time though that made him so susceptible? he was duped again and again and again i mean by just i mean flat out ponzi schemes where he lost it all I mean he was like absolute penury after his presidency uh what what let's
2: let's let's what is it One big factor is you have to deal with strangers all the time uh-huh. um you're in a city often but not necessarily you could just be on the road and the road uh, conceptually is not just the road, but also, of course, the canals and the lakes, too. Um,
0: the Jianghu. <laughs>
2: exactly, Jianghu. And, and uh, Jianghu appears in the title of the of the book, the full title. Oh, it does. Um, so it's very much set in that realm.
0: Let's let's unpack that word a little bit. There sure. are some people who don't know well, what Chris the, the Jianghu is. Chris, this is a hard one to translate, right? Jianghu. How do you typically you yeah. translate the word Jianghu?
1: Very good question. I think that you can do it a couple of ways. Literally, you know, rivers and lakes. Uh-huh. And so it's kind of a geographic marker and but it's also an aquatic metaphor right it's this place of like flow and kind of watery fluid realm um, it's probably best known for being related to the kind of wuxia the or martial you know, arts the epics, martial yeah. arts epics and dramas and chivalric romance of in chinese style uh, so and it's, so like it's a should.
0: world of the the the, the wine shops uh, where the heroes meet each other and there's always that fight that involves like deft use of bowls and chopsticks in the Kung Fu movies. And,
1: exactly. Right. They're all meeting either on the road or at an inn or at this, these kind of transient way stations.
0: The caves where they're given some ancient Buddhist scripture that teaches them, you know, some new martial technique. Uh, what else is there? I mean, there's the market square where they do the combat. There's the, the you know, high mountain tops where there's this sacred temple. Right, yeah. It's like... Dungeons and Dragons, right? I mean, there's that the milieu, uh, right?
1: The- and people are trying to figure out who the other person is. Like, is this guy on my side? Is he on the other side? Is he like you know a brother of the Greenwood? <laughs> uh, you know, is it a, a, a fellow Hal Han or is he an, an evil nemesis in disguise? And you create these kind of fictive these imaginary
2: kinship relations because you're not with your real family you don't have an actual home to rely on but you create temporary brotherhoods and here in these stories it happens all the time that two travelers are on the road together they're both in the same line of work or they're from the same province in foreign parts and they have to decide whether they're going to trust each other and uh, rely on each other's protection and that's an easy way to get duped as well
0: I've often used scene as a way to sort of like, you know, because, Jianghu. yeah, Jianghu these days. I mean, in in the modern context, so uh, we talk about, for example, the the internet business, sort of the the internet startups and venture capital. That is a Jianghu. Uh, the rock and roll scene that I was a part of that was a Jianghu, and you know, I I often get a laugh, and I when people ask me what I'm doing, I'll just. Uh, uh you know regarding music also uh, I've I've you know oh, yes, it retreated left
1: it, it behind right. Right. right of course professors prefer not to think of ourselves as an, as being in an Genesis ivory tower yeah. but rather on the, <laughs> the 雪属江湖, like on the academic <laughs> rivers and lakes. <laughs> Oh yes, yeah. like we are now here in DC. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. This is it. Uh, this gathering of, of Uber Uber, but it's nerds. kind
1: of like the wide, wide world. You know, it's like out there. It's away from home.
0: So that's one definite element of it. And you know, this this doesn't exist in the village, right? This is this is when, as as Bruce as you said, when it uh, you, you're in a period of societal flux. Yeah.
2: Yes, and and on many different scales, including from. Hour to hour, um, one of the contexts that comes up a lot here is literally on the rivers and lakes in boats. A lot of the time, people are traveling from place to place. People are coming onto the boats, going off, and that's an opportunity you have to very quickly come to a judgment is this person reliable or not? And that can include the captain of the boat as well as your fellow passengers.
0: It's funny that you should mention river boats, right? I mean, in the context of what we were just talking about, Mark (laughs) Twain. Uh yeah, Life on the Mississippi and then you know all of his writings about the Gilded Age a lot of that also transpires on riverboats, yeah.
2: Yeah, well it's the perfect place to commit this kind of crime because they're constantly stopping and starting. If you're on an ocean liner and you steal something, um you're stuck. But if you're on a riverboat, you just get hop off at the next port, which might only be an hour or two down the Mississippi or down the Yangtze and um you can get away with it
0: that's that's fascinating okay so we've got we've got that sort of motility that mobile kind of environment and we've got that that societal change what about technology does, does that maybe play a part in it what is not even necessarily like you know the technology in the sense that we think of it now but maybe institutional
2: technologies there are a few things that uh, come to mind one of the key really interesting windows this, uh text gives the, these stories give us but um it's probably going on more widely, is the technologies of trust. If you think of the kind of things we have to do now to make say, a currency trustworthy uh, and to make a transaction trustworthy online, some of the same issues were coming up in this society where people were having to make large purchases and put things in escrow, go through a broker. And so there were ways, for example, of sealing up a box of silver ingots so that you knew the money was there, but you couldn't actually take withdraw it until the transaction was done, that you'd gotten the goods. So there were all kinds of technologies so for making— Wax
0: tr- seal-based escrow, right? Yeah,
2: Actually, I think paper seals and they were stamped with what we call a chop, and um that told you the money was there. it was intact unless somebody found a magical way of uh removing it, which uh, some <laughs> of these stories involve right um but um that was a big problem was knowing the person had the money and that you would actually get it at the end of the day.
0: sounds like uh Bitcoin today. Right. <laughs> or, or all these cryptocurrencies, yeah, I was just watching that um. You know John Oliver uh, has that show last week night, which is just hysterically. This. I mean, I, I well, I was I was watching this segment on on the hype around uh, cryptocurrencies, and and I had been reading the book, and and was just stunned at how similar these societies are. So yeah, I mean, I think in in a, a society where there are um, major technological changes, and some people uh, are ahead of the curve on them, and they are you know are able to. What about this this whole phenomenon of sort of fear of missing out and just that na- na- naked greed that people are all that makes everyone like like general Grant susceptible to these guys uh a fomo big phenomenon in in today's society do you, do you think that it had its its analogy back in seventeenth century Ming China?
1: Well, there's definitely a lot of stories that involve the convincer as a as a one one historian of like the American confidence man put it, where you stimulate someone's greed by giving them a little incentive. You you give them a little money at the, as a sweetener, and then they go all in right. with you, and then you can really take them. So, you know... The Nigerian guy,
0: f- 419 scam, right
1: right right. right? right, right, Yeah, so it does have a lot of uh, late Ming iterations. If someone says, oh, my dad fell in with some thieves, and they buried a lot of silver on your farm. Help me dig it up, and oh, look, here's one, which, of course, you've planted there yourself. <laughs> and then he, you know, that's how he gets in with this guy, and they become confederates and... He scams them. The
2: other place where there's a big fear of missing out is in the civil service exams, which Uh is how you make your... Very time-sensitive. Yes, and you make your way um, to the next echelon of society if you actually pass the exams, or you buy your way in by bribing the right person. And so a lot of the scams involve convincing someone that they are able to bribe the examiners, even if they can't. So the... uh, they make a show of meeting with the examiner. In fact, it's not even the examiner it's only just posing a, as posing right, as the examiner. Right, right, right. But, but yes. there's that fear that if you don't pass, then you're
1: not just you, but your whole family will lose out for generations to come. And so it's a very vulnerable community. And often the fact of bribery is kind of taken for granted. And he condemns it. Zhang Yu condemns it. But that's never the swindle. Like the sw- the swindle is not the bribing the examiner. The swindle is how that money is taken away by some intermediary. Even to the extent of some gang like Pools or Capital buys like an inn and buys a wife for one of them and servants so that they can set up this elaborate, seemingly legitimate business to lure exam candidates in. And then another confederate comes along and tries to do this uh, bribery scam in the inn. And the innkeeper says, you know, leave your money in my safe instead. And as soon as they do that... They take it out of the back and flee
0: we we've we've given a lot of little examples, but let's tell a whole story or two um I mean, I think maybe if each of you can select one that you can do a quick kind of um potted vernacular retelling of bruce why don't you tell us what what's what are one of your favorite what's what's one of your favorite stories from the book
2: so one of my favorite stories is the street sweeper who gets a he thinks a, a, a lucky marriage. He's uh, this impoverished street sweeper uh, in the capital, probably Nanjing, and he um, is so poor that there's no chance he could possibly afford a wife uh, because there was a uh, it was costly to have a, a wedding. Yeah, Venice um, now. Yeah. Exactly, um, but somehow this woman shows up who is a recent widow. And takes a shining to him uh, <sighs> and stays at his house and uh, they're very quickly married and she has means of her own. She uh, has a little bit of money that she uh kept from her her marriage and she uh, they start a family uh, but very quickly uh, it turns out that she's actually scamming him uh what she does is send him to buy cloth so she can make some clothes to sell for a little bit of income. And when he brings it home, she cuts it short and says, this store, they, they tricked you. They they gave you a short piece of cloth. Take it back. He does. The store is upset, but uh, it processes the return. And then she secretly pokes holes in it. And he has to go back again. And the store is much more upset this time and beats him up. And He ends up so badly beaten that she, in the course of um, uh, trying to nurse him back to health, gives him wine and gets him tipsy and then suffocates him. And he dies, seemingly, of the wounds inflicted by the store employees. So she's set it up to look like this man has been killed by the shop that was fleecing them but in fact she was staging the whole thing then she goes to court and sues the uh the storekeepers for for wrongful, death, for wrongful death essentially or actually wants an out of court settlement so that they don't have to go to court for murder and eventually they have to agree to it and uh, she suddenly disappears with the money
0: and once again she's a widow with a recent widow with some means right so, lather, rinse, repeat.
2: Yes, although interestingly, Zhang, you thinks um although he he doesn't seem to know the the full inside scoop that she is actually the wife of a big crook. This is the term he uses gun literally means a stick, but it's the term he uses for all the criminals right, in, good, in yeah. the story and um she's not even a real widow. she's actually the wife of a swindler who is uh set up to well, that's uh, a long con life. though
0: she actually goes through the, the, the trouble of having a family with this guy, and I mean she waits that long to start wow. Amazing. So I, I I note that this is one of many villains who happen to be women. What is going on with that? I mean, uh, obviously traditional China is uh, is deeply sexist, but it seems like a dis- I didn't count, but the a disproportionate number of the villains in this are are, are women. Is that is that correct,
1: Chris? I'd say it's a minority, but okay. they're definitely there. They're definitely well represented. And some of the more popular stories, like the ones you find in other collections, do involve women um that you find yeah 400 years later so yeah they are represented they're often they often involve sex or some kind of sexual enticement uh but sometimes like they wanted meat or oil like basic commodities and then one woman convinces her relative to essentially go into prostitution to keep this thing going um, so it's a uh, so the victims as well as maybe well. a quarter of the story, something okay. like that, okay. involve women as kind of protagonists.
0: Oh, so Chris, can you can you top Bruce's story?
1: <laughs> can I top? It? I do think there is like a logic of one-upsmanship in these. It's, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like jokes, but um, uh, well, and this one, uh, the one I was thinking of is different because it's more like a a serial scam. Uh huh. Where uh, and it also involves bribery around the examinations. Oh, good. Right. So, and this is supposedly a true crime story, like based on actual events from the year 1600, oh. where there were a bunch of people in this county in Fujian who had passed the first and second levels, like the provincial exams, and so they were going to all go to the capital to take uh, the Triennial, top ranking ones. Right, right. right. And when they all leave, some Xiu Tai like the guy at the lowest level uh, works with a crook to forge letters ostensibly from their teacher. So they had all like had the same master or teacher who educated them saying, I had this auspicious dream where I dreamed that your son placed first. And, you know, so he recounts this letter and he actually includes a letter. He said, I actually saw one of these letters from one of these people. And And uh, Uh, And here it is. And so he like copies the whole thing. But he, they would go around to every household and pretend to be from Master Shun and spread the good news. And then they would get like a consideration, a tip from the delighted family members. And they say, you know, We're, we have to go like put on a show and go to all of your classmates' uh, houses. But it's just for show, right? You're the only one. <laughs> <laughs> right? And so uh, but the interesting thing is Zhang Yu's comment at the end where he says he pulled off this remarkable swindle of the painless scam because even though all of these rich families, you know, paid them some money and they netted a fortune, they, they were happy. Good, right? They were they felt happy for uh, you know for several months until everybody failed and came back home. And uh, there's even a study showing that this good news scam was still going on over 100 years later in the Qing dynasty.
0: I think that that's the basis of just about every palm reader and every tarot reader. I mean, that you just sell people on the good news. That's that's how it works. A lot of uh, similarities. Have you guys studied contemporary scams in China? Uh, have you looked at, at anything that has close parallels to what was happening in the Ming dynasty now in the time of reform and opening? Or I guess that period has come to a, a screeching end, but... Uh. Well,
2: um, I haven't myself, but people certainly recognize that parallel in as early as the early 90s. And there's an edition of the Book of Swindles in Chinese that was published with Uh, uh, Baihua, modern vernacular translation Uh and for each story or at least for most of the stories a contemporary parallel where there was a similar swindle that might have taken place on the Shenzhen stock market for example after the original story from the Ming Dynasty so people definitely have seen that.
0: Okay so uh, yeah I want to check out that edition that would be a lot of fun Uh, I mean because you know the parallels are just too striking. Then on most of these things, I think you could come up with a, a modern version of them. I mean, people's basic nature doesn't seem to have changed that much. Uh, you could substitute in instead of, of the the civil service exam the good old Gaokao. I mean, and you could probably you know manage the same thing. Uh, you you guys have both probably spent a little bit of time in Taiwan, have you? Both of you have, yeah, yeah. And in recent years, one thing that really impresses me is that the place is just such a palpably high trust society, but it most certainly wasn't like that always. I mean, in the, you know, the Pienza types in in Taiwan used to. Abound as well. In fact, uh, I think you know a lot of people think they all went left and went to the mainland. Uh, either the, some of the, I and mean, you know, in, in in recent years, you've seen some of the, the big rings that have been busted. For example, the ones that will, will uh, you know call you up and, and tell you about your bank account having been hacked and you know owing all this money, and then you know walking you through all the processes. Uh, it turns out that those people, the, the masterminds, were, were from Taiwan. But my my question is what. What makes a society go from a low trust one, in which you know swindlers abound, to a high trust one, where they have a great deal more difficulty actually making inroads, or is a high tr- is it cyclical? Is a high trust society vulnerable in its own way to, to to swindlers?
2: I think it probably is cyclical because one of the issues is new technologies, especially information ones, are initially useful for swindlers and yeah. eventually people get the hang of them um, so at least i'm hopeful that one day uh, at least some of the simpler internet scams will no longer work uh, you won't be able to make so much money off uh, pop-up ads claiming to uh sell you a penis enlargement or exactly right. um well but... that's always going to work <laughs> <laughs> um but there was no google in uh, well, there's still no Google in China, <laughs> but um, there was there was also no Baidu in uh, the Ming Dynasty, and so one of the issues is how do you check up? How do you figure out if someone is legit or not? And there was simply no mechanism for doing that, other than things like listening to someone's accent to figure out that they're probably from the same province as you are, and therefore they're probably trustworthy. In in a relationship with you, it's not a general trust, but it's a particular relationship.
0: Not not if they have my co-provincial accent, then, then it's the, <laughs> no the Hunanese, right? Uh, who were the Hunanese of the day, though? I wonder I mean, in in Fujian that in was there? Uh, I mean, nowadays you go to to, to Beijing and and everyone says you know they make the jokes about my people about you know uh, uh, Was there was there a an ethnic group or a a particular province or a particular geography that was blamed for for this
1: and definitely most of the stories take place in nanjing or places south Uh uh-huh but i would say you have probably more occupational hazard like certain occupations trend more towards deception certainly right brokers courtesans prostitutes you know people in intermediary roles or in very very transactional ones, or <laughs> yeah. given to betray trust or low, like yamen runners, right? Low government right, officials right, right, right. and people
2: in the, what we might call the transportation industry. Um, so there were no taxi drivers, but porter's. there were yeah
1: porters, sedan chair bearers, Boat boatmen. boatmen, all not to be trusted.
0: <laughs>
1: God, one one curious thing about Zhang Yu's collection, which I think deserves further research, is it came out around the same time that you had a lot of picaresque novels in Spain. Uh-huh. Or Actually. El Buscon, yeah. like the swindler. There was a, a, a novel published around the same time. The first part of Don Quixote, you know, fe- featuring yeah. this delusional character who keeps being tricked on the road. Uh, all these stories seem to be coming out around the same time. So I, I wonder if Silver was part of the connection, or and in that case, there's a lot about you know the chivalric romance. So a kind of a, a Spanish Jianghu imaginary going on and. Making people actually take to the road, so there, so I think there's some interesting resonance. Oh
0: yeah, for sure. I mean, and it, makes, it fits the pattern that we were talking about. I mean, what historians these days like to use the year 1500 really as sort of the the, the dividing line between you know, media, the medieval world and the modern world, right? Uh, and 1500, yeah, I mean, absolutely. That 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 it was a a really transitional period. Where I think you have that change in in social structures, you have the emergence of this, you know, strong burger class, and all all across
1: Europe and and in parts of Asia as well. Yeah, absolutely, very interesting. Hai Li at Stanford University wrote a really interesting book about strangers and Chinese attitudes towards strangers, and she does talk a lot about the the idea of the Jianghu, where some some of these people who find kinship outside the home are, you know, are our, our sworn brothers, but everybody else is kind of fair game, that that's like one type of ethical attitude that has resulted in a lot of mistrust. Right. But, um, but I do think in Zhang Yu's day, society was changing very quickly. Uh, you have a lot of popularity of these types of stories in the early 20th century, where there is very poor governmental controls. And I guess you could say that maybe one of the reasons you also see a big boom in these types of swindle story collections in the 1990s and early 2000s is this kind of let's all get rich first and like all the regulation and the controls are going to catch up in due course.
0: Yeah, that's a very important feature of, of times like that. Uh, what about the role of law enforcement? In these periods, what do the cops do? The 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 magistrates. I mean, how how are they brought into this? And are they themselves corrupt? Are they themselves often used as part of the the swindle?
2: They're absolutely and profoundly corrupt. That's um, one of the base <laughs> assumptions. Especially the the clerks, the low-level employees, sure. but even the magistrates often. And even when they're not corrupt, they're incompetent. That's one of the defining features of this book, uh, because strikingly, it actually is a lot like a genre from the same time the sometimes called detective stories the sure. gong an xiao shuo stories of judge or d court or, case uh,
1: fiction right yeah
2: mm-hmm. yeah it it resu- many of them actually are court cases
0: d- 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 and, yeah, judge d. d these were yeah. made famous in english by robert van gulick Yes uh, and his... who translated a lot of them they're set in the Tang dynasty actually but they were actually written in the Ming is that right
2: Yes and he translated them and then he liked them so much he wrote a bunch more of his own Right right and you know I think they they fit
0: well they his his the original ones are pretty good I Absolutely. heard they were going to make a movie out of that. Whatever happened to they
1: that? Did. They did. Have? Oh, couple, they have a did? It's like Young Judge D. Two. Yeah. I mean, I mean an crazy. English language movie.
2: Oh, yes. A
0: friend um, of mine named Peter Lower was working on that some years ago. I think the, they had introduced some Scottish character. It was weird because you know you have the white savior or whatever, but, <laughs> but uh, I don't know if that ever got made. Those are great. Those are great stories.
2: And and yeah, and often they involve him. Unmasking swindlers, right? Absolutely. Um, in in this collection, though, it's kind of the opposite. One of the other famous judges, Judge Bao, shows up in one of these stories. Bao Gong. Yes, Bao Gong. Yeah.
0: Um, Bao Qingtian is his name. Exactly. A black-faced guy with a moon on, on his forehead.
2: He was Young. always
1: brilliant, you know. He always cracks the case in the yeah. old stories. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah. In this one, though, the opposite happens. Um, someone actually manages to pull one over him. Over on Judge. Bowe. Oh, wow. Yes. And the way he does it is by knowing Judge Bow's psychology extremely well. So it's a clerk in the court who is paid off by a rich young man who has been accused of a crime and is supposed to be flogged in the court. And he, the clerk, instructs the young man to plead for mercy. And the clerk then says, you will get no mercy. And Judge Bao is upset at the clerk for making this decision that the judge should be right. making, and reverse psychology or whatever. Right? Exactly, he transfer and he transfers half of the punishment from the perpetrator to the clerk. To the clerk <laughs> and the clerk knew this would happen and accepted the payment. And of course, he knew also that his colleagues, the other clerks, wouldn't beat him so hard as they would a real criminal. So he got off lightly too, and he made some money
1: off it. Right, and Judge Bao was none the
2: wiser.
0: Yes. So Judge Bao was it was an actual historical character. I've never actually you know thought about him. I watched the TV series when I was a kid, but
2: yeah, if I recall he was a Song Dynasty magistrate. Oh
0: right, Song Dynasty magistrate. Oh, so okay. So some of these stories actually are taken from previous historical times, then, right? or many of them are.
2: Well,
1: it's an interesting uh, collection, and in that it's clearly drawn from a bunch of different sources there are a few, a minority of the stories where you can, like, actually trace it to some biography of a historical personage. Some, like the Judge Bao one, you know, probably made up, right? (laughs) It's embroidery. He's poking fun at Judge Bao. A lot of people did that with drama uh, versions of the Judge Bao stories. Others, we don't know where they came from, but they'll have the same formulation about, like, this story is a warning against this. And, like, there'll be four of them in a row that have that, but none of the other ones in the collection. So they... It's like he probably transported them wholesale from somewhere else. Maybe huh. touched them up a little bit.
2: Interesting. So, what are you guys working on now, Bruce? What do you What do you have on the what, irons? Have ye in the fire? Um, I'm working on what you might call Ming Dynasty Shandai. Oh, <laughs> um, interesting. Basically, fakes, forgeries, and fakes forgeries, out. fakes, and especially material objects that were created in the Ming Dynasty that were sold at a high price often, but um, not only are not fakes of anything um, really valuable, they had to invent the whole category of object they were. Um, so sort of like when you, you know, can go to a market in China and buy a Louis Vuitton, uh, pair of jeans or something like right. that. Right. They've never Vuitton... made jeans. Exactly.
0: Right, right, right. So what are some of these things? And are there any in museums that we're aware of today? And are you about to disrupt the whole global art market?
2: Uh, I'm trying a little bit. <laughs> okay. um, yeah. um, I'm particularly working on this category of things called Xuande Lu, incense burners, that's uh-huh. supposed to be from the early 15th century, but there's no reason to think they actually are. And the...
0: Like de, like obscure virtue?
2: Um, it's actually the reign name, the name of a oh, Ming right, emperor right. Oh, right. Uh, from the 1420s to 30s, but he actually never made these things, and uh-huh. they were... It, completely invented in the 16th century and given a backstory about marvelous things that happened in the palace when a temple full of Buddhist statues burned down and turned into this bizarre alloy made out of the gold and copper and silver and jewels that all fused into uh, a new material that he then used to make these vessels.
0: Fascinating. Wow. I mean, and do you know if there are any Shendelous out there in museums today?
2: There are thousands and they're all fake.
0: Oh, my God. Interesting. But, you know, I think they have historical value for that very fact anyway, right? They're oh, absolutely. Re- to... Rewrite the placard in front of them and then and, and they remain of historical value. Wow. that's I, I'd love to follow up with you on that. That sounds fascinating. Uh, what about you, Chris? What are you, what are you working on these days?
1: My next book will be one about uh, Chinese film classics. So it's actually about film studies. Okay. Some of the best early uh, films that we can still see that were made in China. So they're all black and white films. About half of them are uh, silent films and half are sound films. And I've I've been kind of studying and teaching film for quite a while. And so returning to that. But uh, my re- Swindle-related project is, I think, tentatively going to be called uh, China on the Make <laughs> Both meaning there are all of these stories about China not just being ambitious, but also being somewhat crafty and deceptive. So I feel like deception and Chinese character keep getting pulled together to, to tell the China story. Right. And Donald but,
0: Trump's mind for sure. right?
1: Definitely. But it's not just him. You know, it's no, not no. just the buffoons of the world. Uh, and you all. But then there's also the story of like, well, what stories do Chinese people tell about deception? So like how do Chinese people talk about the make um, so to speak, because you have these collections of swindle stories from throughout the ages. It's like a major theme in literature. Tons of films about it. I, um, you mentioned Taiwan. That made me think of a film called Formosa Mam- Mambo, where this you know law-abiding man gets pulled into one of these scam gangs, and in the last, and he impersonates a policeman apparently uh-huh. very well because he's so trust, trustworthy-looking. But in the last scene, he looks directly at the camera and says, like, I'm going to the mainland. Like, that's my <laughs> Risk next breaks step. Breaks the fourth wall. And then just exactly. <laughs> it. But he's like, you may be next. <laughs> so China's is the land of opportunity. But this is like how the story keeps getting told. And so I'm. I want to kind of bring some of these stories out.
0: Well, my very favorite novel, also written during the Ming, is full of deception and wiles. And but you know, it's of course it's stratagems in warfare. But didn't Sun Tzu himself say that deception is the the, the foundation of war? Right. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I mean, amazing. I, I, I the the book again. I highly recommend it to everybody. It's called The Book of Swindles: Selections from a Late Ming Collection. And the translators again are Christopher Ray, who is here, and Bruce Rusk. Uh, and the author, of course, was Zhang Yingyu. Uh, great. On to recommendations. Let's. Uh, before we, we do that, I do want to uh, remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by Subchina. Sign up for our free daily email newsletter and subscribe to our Subchina Access Premium Membership Program to attend live shows for free, to get deep discounts on our conferences, to uh, join us for live interactive chats with our special guests, and of course to get this podcast ad-free and a few days early each week. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook where our handle is at Uh So, recommendations. Bruce, why don't you kick us off? What do you have for us?
2: I'm going to go with a classic. David Maurer's The Big Con. It's from 1940, and it's a sort of scholarly book. He was a linguist, a social linguist, but he spent the 1930s hanging out with con artists wow. and learning their language and learning their tricks. And it's the book that every 20th century American con artist movie was based on. The Sting, everything David Mamet did about con artists, they oh, all wow. cribbed from him. And so we also use some of his language in figuring out how to translate uh, the terms in Zhang Yu's book. Oh, awesome. I, no, that sounds great. I, I have never even heard of this book. So the author again? Is Maurer. David Maurer, M a u m a u r e r. Maurer, wow. And there's a paperback edition easily available.
0: Well, wow, I'm going to um, buy that on Amazon right as soon as we, we, we're done here. Excellent recommendation. Chris, what do you have for us?
1: You know, there's a new translation out of a Ming Dynasty story collection, Ling Mengchu's Chu's Slapping the Table in Amazement. Um, This is a collection of... Which I'm I'm
0: glad none of you did during this podcast, by the way. That's right, but let's all do it now.
1: (laughs) But it's translated by this uh, amazing pair of uh, translators who had also done Feng Menglong's Sanyin, or uh, story collections, the massive, massive works, like the most important story collections of the Ming Dynasty. And Slapping the Table in Amazement has a lot of fantastic tales of overseas travels, as well as wily, uh, deceptive figures like Lazy Dragon... He's kind of a gentleman thief, and uh, he and his buddies like set up uh, games and contests where the friends will like hang out in a tea house, and he'll try to steal something that's on the table right in front of them while they stay up. So it's they're very entertaining stories and expertly translated. It just came out a couple of months He's ago. Who's the translator? The translators are Shu uh, Huiyang and Yun Yang.
0: Okay, great, great, great. That's a terrific recommendation. I have a really banal one that I'm going to... Uh, for uh, for Christmas this year, or it's last year, I got my kids an Oculus Rift. And uh, it wasn't working super well on the old computer that we would originally plugged it into, but recently we got this smoking new computer and we've uh, hooked it up and, and it's just unbelievable. I, did, I had no idea that VR had advanced this far so quickly. It's it's really quite compelling. I I am not somebody who's easily you know mind blown by technology. I'm around it all the time, but I think they've done a, a fantastic job. I mean, the controllers and everything. It's um, it's an experience. If you haven't already you know done it, if you haven't you know been in these immersive environments yet, it's uh wow. I mean. <laughs> It's, it's pretty amazing. So Oculus Rift. I mean, they're, they're really quite affordable, and there's so much software for them now that's available. Uh, and, and that, too, is pretty affordable. So uh, check it out. It's not just for games. I think that it's really going to be a pretty transformative technology down the road. Uh, so great. Uh, thanks again once more to you gentlemen, Christopher Ray and Bruce Rusk. Uh, and I hope to see you guys back on Seneca soon.
1: Thanks, Kaiser. Thank you.
0: The Sinica Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Drop us an email at sinica at subchina.com. Visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash SupChina news and follow us on Twitter at at SupChina news. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take
2: care.